Ronald, come in. Yes, sir. Ronald, you see that inspector coming up? Is this the same guy who came on board the last time? Yes, sir. Same guy. He was here last time. Okay, good. Can you ask one of the guys to leave a few paint cans near the emergency escape and remove one of the fire extinguishers from the bracket? Just give him what he wants. Otherwise, he will make life difficult for all of us. <laughs> okay, sir. Understood. Welcome to another episode of Embracing Differences with me, Nipin Anand. This podcast series is meant to bring you different perspectives and concepts in safety. The idea really is to create space for thinking and reflection, not to reinforce any grand theories or our prior knowledge on a subject. The aim is to learn and grow, not to remain stagnant. And of course, as I keep saying, there is no reason for you to believe me or any so-called expert. But keep an open mind and be prepared to challenge your beliefs if you truly want to learn more than what you knew yesterday. Some years ago, I wrote an article called Boxing and Dancing. I provided the link to that article, by the way. And I started with a clip that I played at the start of this podcast. Yes, give these auditors what they're looking for. Some paint cans to satisfy their egos. So everything is kept in balance. That way, they get to issue a non-confirmance. And I know very well that I can fix the problem. Now, because these auditors give me a hard time every time they come on board, I have found a way to keep them entertained without ruffling too many feathers. And this is what I refer to as boxing and dancing. Now, this was about six years ago or five years ago when I wrote this article. And at that time, it almost felt like a joke to me and to many who read this article. But as time passed by and I did more and more audits, I started making meaning of my work. And I began to see the dance between power and knowledge more clearly. Auditors have the power to issue non-confirmances, but they never actually engage with the auditees who have the knowledge of the local context. Likewise, the auditees have the in-depth knowledge and understanding of how the stuff works on the ground level, but they really have no influence to change anything. Now, there's a book waiting there to be written on this topic, but for now, allow me to introduce my very special guest and someone whose work has inspired me for many, many years now, Dr. Christine Stockinson. Let's ask Christine what she makes of this power struggle. I think it's going to be a fun exercise and an awful lot of learning. What did you think, Christine? <laughs> well I need to laugh because it's uh, so recognizable from uh, the seafarers and from how things happen at the vessels. Uh, and uh, it's so sad at the same time. How did we end up uh, putting out paint cans for an auditor? It's insane. So I'm thinking about uh, how our research uh, have contributed in enlightening or, or kind of opening up that black box of insane safety work and trying to understand how it became like that. Great. And this is exactly what I want to explore with you today. Um, so even before we did that, Christine, tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are uh, and uh, what do you do and what inspired you to take this journey? Well, thank you. Uh, I'm a sociologist. And I am from the northern part of Norway, so I grew up with the sea. I grew up with seafaring and vessels, and many in my family is in that industry. And out of coincidence, I started working in, in this great place uh, called NTNU Social Research, where we have a lot of different research projects in lots of different industries, uh, but also we have this great safety at sea project uh, for one oil company in Norway. Uh, and I saw that my background from where I grew up and my background from uh, sociology actually could uh, contribute in understanding 
how to make work safer or at least to understand how things are as they are at the vessels today. Uh, so I must thank both my family and my uh, co-workers here at New Social Research, where I still works uh, almost 20 years after. Um, and, and a lot of different research projects led me to understand that it was so much to safety management. It's so much, so many puzzles. It's so, uh, it's so much we don't know. The clip you, you showed from uh, Ronald and his and the auditor and his captain, it's two parallel worlds. Uh, you can see that audits and safety management can be a part of a formal world. And then you have the real world, so to say, how we do work. And this has been pointed out in uh, safety research for decades but still it's kind of a puzzle how it became like that and, and how to do something about it. Great, great. Um, so tell me in a nutshell, uh, what was your research all about? If we focus on my uh, PhD and the work I've done with safety management at sea, um, it was actually first to understand, or I just wanted to understand uh, the research field of, of safety at sea, how is it and how to improve it. And then I understood that the ISM code, safety management regulation at sea, is a key component here. And that most seafarers have so much negative uh, to say about it. And I was interested in, in understanding what is this safety management code? What is this uh, huge paper uh, documentation uh, regulations that everyone is talking about? And I, and I visited it and I saw, okay, it's about eight pages, uh, A4 or standard pages of text that mainly says, or the, the, at least the most important first part says, well, Shipping operators are um, uh, responsible for the safety at their vessels, and they should manage in a way that safety is preserved in their vessels, in a way that uh, safety is handled in their operations. And this is not what we see when we get on a vessel, we see, and, or not what we hear. We hear that safety is... Uh, yeah, that's uh, the two parallel worlds. You have safety management on one side, and that's the ISM code, and then you have the, the real work, safe work on the other side. Uh, so my PhD was then kind of narrowed down and focusing on understanding how is the ISM code translated at the regulator side, at the shipping company and the vessel side. And what I saw was that you have this, what research is, is talking about is you have uh, a rule of red tape, you have proceduralization and safety clutter. And this might be because, or it's connected to the ISM code. And then it seems it run counter to the objective of safety, which is the objective of the ISM code. Uh, of course, it might be that some of your listeners doesn't know the ISM code. It is a quite simple function-based rule work that says you should make a safety management system. And it's international in the maritime industry because it's made by the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, and it's enforced by the different flag states. And each company should have that, their ISM certificate or a document, uh, and uh, each vessel should have it. So a part of the ISM code is also about how to verify and get approved to have this ISM certificate to make it simple. Uh, and some in the uh, safety research would say that this is uh, an example of work as imagined work versus work as done, uh, because you have the safety management systems that are made by people on shore and they kind of imagine how work is done. So they try to make procedures on how to do work. Uh, but then you have work is done, which is 
the real work, uh, which is not fitting to the procedures always. Uh, but this is kind of too simple because we know of so many shipping companies that actually try to simplify. They try to make uh, the procedures doable and, and practical and simple, uh, but yet they fail all the time. It's, they kind of just see the need to add and add and add new procedures. You being a sociologist, what I'm really interested in is that, you know, you touched upon the idea of the gap between work as done and work as imagined. And I think there's a lot of safety research today that is pointing towards those gaps. What I'm really interested to hear from you, Christine, is as a sociologist, uh, coming from such a, such a wide perspective, I would like to understand from you why that gap exists in the first place. We don't get to understand that very well in the literature today that we have. Yeah, I agree. And, and as I said, I think it's a simplification that's sometimes having that vocabulary and that the theory has been useful. But also I think that we too often uh, simplify too much when we just say, okay, then this work is imagined there and this work is done. And that's kind of, will always be a gap. And it, it's just because someone is sitting at uh, the office and someone else is doing the real job. Uh, but to me, I will say that it's usually not that simple because the people at, in the office, most of them actually do try to understand what's happening and try to get into, to get into the procedures that you should have some flexibility. There will always be variability in the operations that you never want to standardize everything. Uh, at least many uh, shipping companies and, and a lot of office and, and safety workers try to get in those uh, discretionary space, that kind of discretionary space into the procedures. So I, what I find most uh, interesting and what we're, should take into account when we use those terms is that when the word procedures get in a different way than what the practice is, is often because of a lot of other constraints and other expectations to the shipping companies or to the procedures and to the certification. So, uh, so I would say about the workers imagine workers done debate that it's often it kind of precludes or mess up the debate because it seems so simple when it's not. Great and great point. And you said that there are there are good reasons for that. And give us some examples of why we end up in that situation. Yeah, my research shows that when you have safety management system, the ISM codes say you says that you should develop a safety management system with procedures for your work or the important uh, operations. But also you have other types of uh, guidelines and standards, uh, regulations, and even trends in society. You should demonstrate accountability uh, as a company. A company needs to show that they have control over all the work that is done, that you don't take unnecessary risks so we as a society have developed so many routines or uh, expectations to, to the companies that leaving them with no or almost no other options than to document as much as possible and to do the documentation in a way that it's recognizable for auditors that are going to come and certify or verify that they have followed certain rules and even private certifications. And all this is kind of put into the safety management system and led upon the CFRs. Uh, in, in the, all the documentation is, of course, upon the CFRs to do order. Isn't that interesting, Christine? Because today we have a ship that is stuck in the Suez Canal, a huge ship. And the societal response is that this is a black swan. And this is, is a completely unimagined situation. And how, uh, how the hell did we get into this situation? Have we lost control of these big mega, uh, mega islands that we are floating on? on? And we, one wonders 
is it really unimaginable is it something that that is so difficult to comprehend because when you talk to an average seafarer and their struggles of going through it on a daily basis one could say that this was not a question of if it was a question of when this would happen and and you're absolutely right in what you said that a lot of controls that's that the companies are putting is is really to to overcome that anxiety of the society that you cannot have these mega size ships these dangerous things floating on the water if you do not have appropriate controls so you end up putting controls that are a response to the society's anxiety the society's needs which may or may not necessarily correspond to the actual problems and the, those actual problems can can be foreseen from inside from the seafarers from the managers but and yet it is so difficult to turn back to the society and say they cannot be controlled so here you are stuck between what you can control and what you can't control but you what you can say or what you can't say say to the outside society isn't it yeah and that is and then we start inventing controllable uh, tasks documentable tasks auditable tasks so to demonstrate that we are in control we Uh, that that country is in control over their industry that shipping company is in control over their vessels that that uh, a captain perhaps is in control over her um seafarers then the only way to show that we are in, in control is to document it isn't that strange and then we suddenly and uh, think that now it's documented you can see it in this excel sheet or black and white uh, uh, it's on paper um then we can say oh they say they they're in control and then we just have to believe it and so it's some kind of trust still uh, but we have to have it on paper or or documented and then of course you need to invent tasks and uh, goals and um Uh, answer those goals with tasks that are uh, documentable. So instead of saying, "Oh, it's really difficult to un- to understand how we should prevent those big accidents," then we just say, "We know what accidents are or will be, and to prevent it, we will do this and this and this." Uh, and here you can say that we have this system, and you can come check it. Uh, so what I've been writing about lately is. Um, together with my great co-workers uh, from NTNU, Sintef, and uh, um, Australia, uh, is that the shipping companies, uh, or the actually we've been studying several uh, businesses. So the managers, they will be or have to be kind of insecure because the the reality is so complex, and they need to demonstrate that it's not so it's actually impossible to know exactly what to do and it's impossible to to have the really correct measures so you just have to keep on adding measures and keep on adding tasks to demonstrate that you are in control and that if something happens and the media god forbid calls then you will be able to show that you have done what you could so this Uh, managerial insecurity and and the demands for liability and control drives the safety management systems drives the procedures to be and the documentation demands to be so large and perhaps ill-fitting because it's not um, necessarily um, directed directly at your job Uh, and this creates this kind of parallel universe of safety management systems as a parallel to the the real work that's and i've been trying to understand what can we do about it then i know a lot of ship owners that have and uh, other type of companies that have tried to simplify their safety management systems and try to kind of be honest in a way of saying that we don't know how to control everything but we know how to control this and let's keep it like that but a lot of them have been uh, getting these audits and auditors saying well this is not fitting with uh, guidelines that we have I mean it might be fitting with the intentions with the guidelines it might be 
fitting with the intentions of the ISM code, for instance, but still we have this sheet of different, uh, different types of uh, things you should address and you haven't addressed everything. So I suggest you add it right away or you will get non-conformatives. So that is why I say that it has been, or other <laughs> Michael Power said it has been an audit explosion and we've seen it in shipping. And I say that we need this audit implosion because if we do audits in a different way, perhaps we could actually try to reduce the documentation demands or try to do the documentation in another way. And perhaps then we could in some way try to merge the two parallel worlds instead of having uh, real work and safety management or as uh, our uh, co-workers in Australia and in the safety innovation lab say that you have safety work, which is the formal part and the safety of work, which will be something different. Perhaps we can merge that if we address how audits are performed. And so Ronald doesn't have to put those uh, uh, painting cans <laughs> to make the auditor happy because auditor just need to find something. So it's, it's not really the, the issue of control, but it's the illusion of control that most of us are looking for. Uh, so that managerial instinct that you talk about, it's funny you say that because the term manager actually comes from the Latin term manus, which is to, to make the horse run at a particular pace. So it's all about control. And I, I, I see, I completely recognize what you're saying about the managerial instinct. Uh, so there's two more things you said. Well, one was that the increasing level of bureaucracy, the, the, the increasing level of paperwork, and you, you made a very wonderful point to say, we are adding more procedures. Nobody really goes and says, let's take two procedures out from the system. Everyone is just adding more procedures to it. But I think the other thing that you, you said, which was equally interesting was, uh, and you used the word ill-fitting, is that the system that you create has become misaligned with its purpose. And it's become misaligned to the extent that it's become disconnected with the purpose. Yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right because where we end up in the situation is with that Ronald and the safety inspector that we started off from, that Ronald is giving to the safety inspector what he or she is looking for and to satisfy their needs and their checklists and their goals and their objectives. But Ronald is doing something completely different in his work. So there are two realities here, the auditor's reality and the worker's reality. And the two have become so distant. And the only time the two really align with each other is when a big accident happens. And we go and look into the system, into the broken system. The interesting bit, Christine, to me is that even at that stage, you are so beautifully able to maintain the distance between the two realities. And I keep going back to the, the Wakashio example of the ship that went aground, where you see the reality where a captain is actually struggling to maintain safe distance from the land, but he's also trying to get his crew to speak uh, on, on a phone. So in a way, he has taken the conflict on, on him, that conflict between well-being of people and safety of navigation. But that conflict is not visible to the auditor and it's not visible to the office. The only time that conflict is visible is when an accident happens, but how the society has been so beautifully able to still maintain that gap between the two realities. And I think that's fascinating that we continue to live with those, you know, with, with that gap, irrespective of whether it's normal work or it's an accident. Yeah. And I have a coworker, Håkon Fien, that um, is very focused on that trust is the key word here. We have lost trust, or at least uh, we, in Norway, we are really proud of the trust we have, but still it's, it's not much to be proud of because we kind of try to get as, as much from the trust as possible because to show that we're in control, it's not possible to just say, well, I trust my employees. I know that the, the CFRs will do what they are supposed to do, I know that the company owner is doing everything in her uh, that she can to keep the, um, the operations safe. But though we as a society in all industries, we kind of go into this, um, this illusion of 
not wanting to tr trust if it's not documented. And, and me and, and my coworker have been talking a lot about this is giving many of the safety management tasks and also other tasks in organizations can be called bullshit tasks. It's not that you have uh, all uh, that you, the work of of all or groups of uh, our bullshit work, but most working or professions have some kind of bullshit tasks, and mostly they are related to safety management. And <laughs> and this we have seen in so many industries, and we everyone we talk about uh, to about this is is recognizing this. So it's not only the safety management in maritime, but it is an entire society that we have gone away from trust, or maybe the trust wasn't there in the first place, but still we, we it's just so um, ironic that we think that we can trust that someone has control when it's documented. So why, but then it creates this this parallel work, this audit loop, audit loops, uh, when we create tasks just because they are auditable, just because to get approved in some way, why just don't skip that part? When we need trust and we know we're not in control, even though it's documented, we still need trust. Why just don't skip the bullshit tasks and the, the part where that doesn't give anything to anyone except from extra work and, and illusions of control. I wanted to talk to you about a book that I'm reading right now. Uh, it's called Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Yeah, He's you're an anthropologist. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, was, he is the inspiration of the word bullshit tasks. But I just want to emphasize that I, I still haven't talked with anyone who finds their entire job bullshit, but that almost everyone I talk to find parts of their job uh, or some tasks like bullshit. Well, I did for many years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, David Graeber does have so many interesting points. And I do think that we should uh, listen to the kind of the seriousness in what he described and that we, could, we can learn something. So we need to get an audit implosion perhaps need to add trust uh, and we need to take a, away the bullshit tasks I think yes um, and I would like you to talk to me a little bit about what kind of trust are we talking about here because trust is a very abstract term yeah and I'm not even though I'm a sociologist I'm not the right person to I'm not an expert in trust but I do see that most people do trust their or professionals around them uh, to be professional, to have knowledge about their work, to take the right, make the right decisions, to have a knowledge and some kind of information uh, that they need to, to do the right quality work. And most of us, even if, if we look at um, health personnel or or if we look at school teachers we do trust them to do the right job uh, or do a good job and we do understand that right now they usually don't have time because they have so much or that was uh, too extreme but they have a lot of documentation and they have a lot of bullshit tasks, tasks to spend that valuable uh, working hours on so I imagine that we because we do have that trust in their professional uh, judgment. So why just don't let them have the time to do it? And one thing is that perhaps technology can help us because if we look at the safety management regulations, they usually uh, say that you should have procedures and, and you should have, you should do work in a way that's safe and it should be verified. But perhaps, uh, but also we are quite monitored in our work and CFERs especially, they're monitored in so many ways, in so many, I mean, the, the automatic logs of uh, engines and, and computers and uh, uh, 
Deadman uh, alarms and uh, and all the all rep re the reporting they need to do to safe see that and such. Why just don't use that information we, uh, and say that well your job is already documented. Uh, why would you need? Of course, checklists can be. I mean. That is really important to say. I, I don't think that all procedures are bad. I really think that safety management can be a good uh, and formal safety management too can be a good thing that you, you and my studies have shown also that it's really good in, in a lot of way that you get routines and you get knowledge and, and time to think about uh, doing your job safety and time to discuss it. That's really important and learn. Uh, but when you get it's so much to document and it's so much to report, then you lose much of the good things. So why don't let the machines do the documentation? When, at least when there is machines already doing documentation, because now it's so much double reporting going on. And uh, so that, but that would be like a, not a very satisfying uh, part of kind of audit implosion, but it would uh, make uh, more space for actual real safe work in uh, a person's professional life. So that could be a part of audit implosion. Uh, we could have new audit practices. That could be another way to reduce proceduralization and to have an audit implosion uh, and to increase trust. Uh, if we said that instead of having this system revisions of auditors only looking at at uh, the systems or the documentation, or auditors in Ronald's case, um, only looking at some things on a list that's not uh, necessarily the most important things on the vessel. Uh, why don't we try to talk with the auditors and the regulators and understand how can we, in a practical and, and doable way, look at what is important in in the jobs that people are doing. That would be one also kind of um, building the bridge between uh, trust and uh, how audits are done today. But I do think that it would have been really interesting to see what happens if we dropped the audits completely. If we said that we have this regulation uh, and it is a kind of um, self-regulation on the com uh, companies because it says that the company is responsible and it says that they should do this and that. But still, it's not self-regulation now because someone is get checking what they did. So what it would be a great experiment to just see what happened if we took away the audits. And we would say that, okay, we, we trust you. We need to trust you and we trust you do things. Perhaps we would learn something. Perhaps safety management would could be done in a way that had more to do with the real work and the there's work that creates or that is safe so i'm not sure is it possible at least when i talk with the classification companies and regulators they are quite tempted and interested in in thinking along those sides but i i'm not sure how we could start creating that movement there's, there's lots to think about what you just said. From what my own research and thinking has been pointing towards is, is this whole idea of trying to understand the dynamics between power and knowledge. And I think that's the bit I find most interesting in this whole audit game, is that someone, or I say there's an institution out there that believes that it can control the, the risk yeah. And what we do is that we have auditors who who legitimize this control, who who embody this control, this power, if, if you want to put it this way. So I think we have turned this whole equation or this whole thing into a power versus knowledge game. So certain people have the power to do certain things like go and do an audit, decide what is conf confirmant and what is non-confirmant, which, by the way, is extremely very subjective. There is no such thing like confirmance and non-confirmance. Mm. Uh, it's all negotiation throughout, uh, all the way. And then there is the, the other side, which is so knowledgeable, knows everything, but has very little 
power to actually do something about that knowledge. So why don't we create that equation between power and knowledge? And I think in that sense, it's, it's, it proves very helpful. And one thing I've been very vocal about throughout is that uh, my, my, my career and my research is that why don't we turn it from a power versus knowledge game towards a learning experience? Yeah. Is that everyone actually gains something out of it because you have many auditors whose experiences have become outdated. There are some auditors or there are lots of auditors and inspectors who are very new to the profession. And then there is a vast uncertainty, uh, you know, but, but always stays ahead of uh, what regulations and, and, and standards can actually imagine, let alone enforce. So there's a huge opportunity for learning from every point of view, but are we actually seeing the potential and uh, by, by combining power with knowledge, you know, that, that we actually create those collaborative opportunities between the auditor and the auditee, that no one really sees the other person as a threat and nobody really sees them, this as an opportunity to feed someone's ego. Mm. It, becomes, it becomes a more collaborative exercise. It becomes more fun, more learning. Mm. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Christine. I think it's very interesting. And also I get to, um, I, I get an urge to state that I guess both uh, you and me, we, at least I think that of course something should be audited and regulated. Uh, we wish perhaps, I mean, it's really important to set the standards uh, on the technical part. And of course, also on the safety management. As a sociologist, I'm grateful that um, people are thinking about safety management in, when they are making regulations and thinking that you can have some standard and increased standards. Uh, but also, uh, I'm, um, it's there that the controls are, or the, the inspections are really difficult because it's so difficult to observe that safety is managed in the, the right way. Um, so, and it's, so it's there we also need the real learning uh, and and the real knowledge. Um, so, and as you said, it will always be trust and it's always discretionary space because even though we try now with the, um, the classification companies and, the, and in the inspections, try to standardize everything, but it's not possible. So there will always be a room for, for discretion. And, Mostly that is a good thing, but still that says that we still have some trust and that there will always be some trust. So why are we fooling our, ourselves to think that we, to say that we don't have trust and that it's possible to do something in black and white. And that creates this, this uh, as you, you have been writing about, and as you said that this environment of, of contradictions and no learning. I can't imagine exactly how to do that. Do you have thoughts on how to create this learning environment in an inspection or through regulation? Shall I give you an example? Yes, please. And and I do have, uh, uh, but first <laughs> let me say that I do think that the ISM code is actually creating some um, space for it. So it's just that we need, we don't need to, change the regulation, we just need to change practices. So let me hear what your thoughts are. Uh, that's a very good question, but a very difficult question, the second one. Uh, in fact, both are difficult, but uh, I think one of the things that we find uh, uh, most of the times happens is that we are all shaped by or by influenced by our goals and objectives. You know, what is it that the goals that we have been set against? And I'll tell you that when I was an auditor, it's almost, you, you live in two worlds. One world where you believe that you, you must do what, what is the right thing to do. So, and the other world is the social world that, that, that shapes your view about what is that right or wrong thing. So there's always a conflict between the two. So when I first became an auditor, uh, I had something deep, very deep anxiety in me that halfway down the audit within the first four hours, if I don't find a non-conformance, I would be very happy about it. Actually, things are working in practice. I'm getting some good interaction. There's some good learning happening here, but something keeps bothering you in the back. Is that 
how do you legitimize your position as an auditor? That's one. How do you go back to the office because your report is going to get verified by somebody else? And how do you then that tell that person that you found nothing out of order? Everything was perfect. And if you did, there was no reason to 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 qualify it as a non-confirmance because it you know that threshold is very subjective. That what is non-confirmant and what is just below non-confirmant. It's a qualitative world. And then what about that shipping company? How would that react to that non-confirmant? So you're constantly fighting that identity. You know you are in a very fluid identity as an auditor. That on the one hand. you want to 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 issue a non confirmance to save your face to save your profession on the other hand it's very hard for you to justify that and you in deep in your heart you know it's 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 quite okay so how do you live with that contradiction and i think one of the things that i have always felt useful is that as an organization you can actually support this process very well so let's say what the goal of the audit is the goal of the audit is to is to improve the system is to improve the performance of the system so why don't we come up with a slightly different goal now where we acknowledge the tension between power and knowledge and the way we do that is that you as an auditor have the power but you also need to have the knowledge so why don't you go on board and come back with two new things that you didn't know until the day of the audit yes and that that to me is is really addressing the 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 equation between power and knowledge but you but you took a little bit different uh, uh uh approach to it now you acknowledge that and you create that space and uh you create that environment where learning happens both on both ends so now this auditor becomes a little bit more humble a little bit more curious wanting to 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 really understand the things because that's what shapes his or her goals not the non confirmances that that they issue but what did they learn from this experience and i think that's one way of looking at it in my view yeah but and that is really interesting uh and intriguing uh but when it comes to uh, system revisions do you think it would be possible uh to have that kind of goal for a system revision and that would that improve how things are documented because because i really would like or and i think a lot of cfers really would like to reduce the documentation demands so let's talk about that now so uh, when we say system review and it's a very interesting word you use system review so what is a system review do we really understand the system what is the intent of the system what are the who are the different stakeholders in the system what are their needs what are their goals what are the conflicts in the system so unless we understand that we will never be able to review and improve the system and the, the trouble with most of the audits and inspections is that they take a very uh, fragmented approach fragmented in the sense that they go straight after one goal which is say, improve safety you cannot improve safety without understanding how the system works or you cannot review and improve the system without without knowing what a system so this is where i find uh, the work of uh, greg smith uh, is is intriguing but also the work of andrew hopkins where he talks about mindful compliance so what you're trying to do as an auditor you're constantly trying to understand how the system operates and i know it's a very difficult thing for many inexperienced auditors or even experienced people but one way to achieve that is to listen to different sides is to really try to understand different sides understand the dependencies in the system understand that what is the function of a container ship yeah it is meant to to start from one point at end at another point and deliver cargo on time what are the difficulties and if it doesn't do that it it disrupts the whole value chain so if if you pay attention to the system how what is the system intended to do the review of the system more or less will come to a point where procedures start to connect with the purpose the procedures start to serve the purpose and this is a very interesting situation because instead of adding two more checks in the system you might end up in a situation where you start to to remove those extra checks whether not adding value not adding safety you you call them bullshit tasks and that's exactly what they are isn't it yeah, yeah. but i also try to imagine because we know now that you have a lot of audits or revisions uh, or what to call them and that is about just checking things on the list and that is not uh, about understanding the goal 
But if we then could make the auditors have that approach, understand the goal, understand the system, how it uh, works, how it is working, if it's working as intended on the particular vessel with the particular um, tasks and operations, uh, then we also perhaps could uh, get quality. I mean, instead of, of getting less quality from the audits, we could get more quality and assistance from the audits because then also the shipping companies would uh, not be as tempted to buy those ill-fitting systems that they are in some um, sectors now do, uh, that they just buy a system that you, they know it's going to get approved. Um, and then you perhaps could get into um, more quality in the procedures. Still, I'm, I'm skeptical. I mean, I really would like to be positive, but I am skeptical about, <laughs> about if we will manage to get away from the other expectations from society. As I started with, it's not just the ISM code that's going to be, or, or other ship um, or maritime regulations that you go, you need to comply with. You also need to comply with with specific rules from other parts of society, and also these expectations. Uh, so, and that is why it's such a huge job, and why it's so important to talk about is the decision or yeah, the society's expectations about trust and control, because. If no matter how much we do through shipping audits, we will still have those expectations. But it could be really a, a, a good way to start if we know enough auditors and, and get to have real discussions with auditors and regulators about having those types of goals. I guess a lot of them would really... Yeah, we could ch change uh, the world one step at a time. And frankly, I, I don't know the answer to that because that is a very difficult question to answer. Uh, I, uh, I have tried many times, but I've failed. Uh, it's how do you create trust between the managers and the professionals? Um, is It's not an easy one, no. Um, I don't know, I'm at loss here, but those, the question that you asked is, is a difficult one, yes. And it does fit with your podcast because we need to be open and curious and um, ask those hard questions. And I do think that the more we talk about this, the more we get enough people interested in the subject because so many of us experience it if we work at shore or if we work at sea, it's so many of those bullshit tasks and so much uh, of that uh, nonsense uh, safety clutter that we need to do. So just by reflecting about it, we perhaps could do something, but we need to understand that complex web uh, and that, uh, but I do think audits, that's the place to start. And uh, let us uh, follow uh, Nipin and Christina's recommendations <laughs> about uh, uh, addressing that power and knowledge um, to learn and to perhaps create some audit implosion, reduce at least the parts of the audits, and then yes. reduce documentation. And I really like what you said, that we can't solve all of our problems today, but at least we can talk about them. What did you make of this discussion? I'm really very curious to hear your views. I have myself struggled to find much meaning in audits, not because of the underlying philosophy of how the auditing framework works, but because how well-intentioned ideas, well-intentioned audits have become so disconnected from practice. You know, I once issued a positive observation, horrible term, by the way, if I look back now. Uh, so I issued a positive observation to a shipping company to bring a very simple and powerful idea to their attention, which was that 
how their crew was managing last-minute changes to the ship's schedule on a short notice. The company's safety manager called me and asked me to remove this observation from the system. Why? Because it added no value to the company. On the contrary, he would say that it would lead to more questions from their clients when they saw one more observation. So please, Mr. Auditor, no observations, please. If you don't have a non-confirmance or a negative observation, please just leave me alone. Please don't increase my paperwork. What a sorry state of affairs. When a window of opportunity is lost to understand how the company copes with uncertainty on the front line. It's another thing to say that if I turn it into a negative non-confirmance, it would leave a bad taste and a sour relationship between the auditor and the auditee. Either ways, do you realize how meaningless KPIs are keeping us at distance from all the operational learning and feedback? When ships start to go aground because of this meaningless paperwork and we become disconnected from practice, it's time to think and reflect upon what Christine beautifully describes as the audit implosion. Maybe it's time to think about ways to turn this meaningless boxing and dancing exercise of first placing and then clearing paint cans to satisfy someone's egos into some kind of meaningful dialogue and discussion so that both the auditor and the auditee can learn something new from this exercise. Something that they did not know until they started off with the audit. I leave you with those thoughts. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope the time you spent was worthwhile. If the podcast has made you think, slow down and reflect, I have achieved my purpose. Please share it with others in your community. That way the message goes far and wide. I spend a lot of time thinking, researching and producing meaningful content. If there's a specific topic that you wish to know more about, please let me know. If I can, I will make every attempt to create something that is meaningful and valuable to you. If you have a topic that you would like to discuss with me, please feel free to be in touch, particularly if there's something you don't agree with. Disagreements are a lot of fun. I wish to also remind you that all my podcasts, related reference material and transcripts for each podcast is available on my website, novellas.solutions. You can also get in touch with me on the same website or through LinkedIn, Twitter or my personal website, nipinanand.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.